0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Chapter 46 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. READ BY MARIANNE CHAPTER 46 ONCE AND NOW So on those happy days of yore, oft as I dare to dwell once more, Still must I miss the friend so tried, whom death has severed from my side. But ever when true friendship binds, spirit it is that spirit finds, In spirit, then, our bliss we found in spirit yet to them i'm bound uland margaret was ready long before the appointed time and had leisure enough to cry a little quietly when unobserved and to smile brightly when anyone looked at her her last alarm was lest they should be too late and miss the train but no they were all in time and she breathed freely and happily at length seated in the carriage opposite to mr bell and whirling away past the well-known stations, seeing the old south-country towns and hamlets sleeping in the warm light of the pure sun, which gave a yet ruddier color to their tiled roofs, so different to the cold slates of the north. Broods of pigeons hovered around these peaked and quaint gables, slowly settling here and there, and ruffling their soft, shiny feathers, as if exposing every fiber to the delicious warmth. There were few people around at the stations. It seemed almost as if they were too lazily content to wish to travel. None of the bustle and stir that Margaret had noticed in her two journeys on the London and North-Western line. Later on in the year this line of railway should be stirring and alive, with rich pleasure-seekers. But as to the constant going to and fro of busy tradespeople, it would always be widely different from the Northern lines here a spectator or two stood lounging at nearly every station with his hands in his pockets so absorbed in the simple act of watching that it made the travellers wonder what he could find to do when the train whirled away and only the blank of a railway station some sheds and a distant field or two were left for him to gaze upon the hot air danced over the golden stillness of the land farm after farm was left behind each reminding Margaret of German idols, of Hermann and Dorothea, of Evangeline. From this waking dream she was roused. It was the place to leave the train and take the fly to Hellstone, and now sharper feelings came shooting through her heart, whether pain or pleasure she could hardly tell. Every mile was redolent of associations, which she would not have missed for the world but each of which made her cry upon the days that are no more, with ineffable longing. The last time she had passed along this road was when she had left it with her father and mother. The day, the season, had been gloomy, and she herself hopeless, but they were there with her. Now she was alone, an orphan, and they, strangely, had gone away from her, and vanished from the face of the earth. It hurt her to see the hellstone road so flooded in the sunlight, and every turn and every familiar tree so precisely the same in its summer glory as it had been in former years. Nature felt no change, and was ever young. Mr. Bell knew something of what would be passing through her mind, and wisely and kindly held his tongue. They drove up to the Leonard Arms, half farmhouse, half inn, standing a little apart from the road as much as to say that the host did not so depend on the custom of travellers as to have to court it by any obtrusiveness. They, rather, must seek him out. The house fronted the village green, and right before it stood an immemorial lime-tree, benched all round, in some hidden recesses of whose leafy wealth hung the grim eschewan of the leonards. The door of the inn stood wide open, but there was no hospitable hurry to receive the travellers, When the landlady did appear, and they might have abstracted many an article first, she gave them a kind welcome, almost as if they had been invited guests, and apologized for her coming having been so delayed, by saying that it was hay-time, and the provisions for the men had to be sent afield, and she had been too busy packing up the baskets to hear the noise of the wheels over the road, which, since they had left the highway, ran over short soft turf. "'Why, bless me!' exclaimed she, as at the end of her apology a glint of sunlight showed her Margaret's face, hitherto unobserved in that shady parlour. "'It's Miss Hale, Jenny,' said she, running to the door and calling to her daughter. "'Come here! Come directly! It's Miss Hale!' And then she went up to Margaret, and shook her hands with motherly fondness. "'And how are you all? How's the vicar and Miss Dixon, the vicar above all? God bless him!' "'We've never ceased to be sorry that he left.' Margaret tried to speak and tell her of her father's death. Of her mother's it was evident that Mrs. Perkis was aware from her omission of her name. But she choked in the effort, and could only touch her deep mourning and say the one word, "'Papa.' "'Surely, sir, it's never so,' said Mrs. Perkis, turning to Mr. Bell for confirmation of the sad suspicion that now entered her mind.' there was a gentleman here in the spring it might have been as long ago as last winter who told us a deal of mr hale and miss margaret and he said mrs hale was gone poor lady but never a word of the vicar's being ailing it is so however said mr bell he died quite suddenly when on a visit to me at oxford he was a good man mrs perkis and there's many of us that might be thankful to have as calm an end as his come margaret my dear her father was my oldest friend and she's my goddaughter. so i thought we would just come down together and see the old place i know of old you can give us comfortable rooms and a capital dinner you don't remember me i see but my name is bell and once or twice when the parsonage has been full i've slept here and tasted your good ale to be sure i ask your pardon but you see i was taken up with miss hale let me show you to a room, Miss Margaret, where you can take off your bonnet and wash your face. It's only this very morning I plunged some fresh-gathered rose-heads downward in the water-jug, for, thought I, perhaps some one will be coming, and there's nothing so sweet as spring-water scented by a musk-rose or two. To think of the vicar being dead! Well, to be sure, we must all die. Only that gentleman said he was quite picking up after his trouble about Mrs. Hale's death. "'Come down to me, Mrs. Perkis, after you have attended to Miss Hale. I want to have a consultation with you about dinner.' The little casement window in Margaret's bedchamber was almost filled up with rose and vine-branches, but pushing them aside, and stretching a little out, she could see the tops of the parsonage chimneys above the trees, and distinguish many a well-known line through the leaves. "'Aye,' said Mrs. Perkis, smoothing down the bed— and dispatching Jenny for an armful of lavender-scented towels. Times is changed, miss. Our new vicar has seven children, and is building a nursery ready for more, just out where the arbour and tool-house used to be in old times. And he has had new grates put in, and a plate-glass window in the drawing-room. He and his wife are stirring people, and have done a deal of good. At least they say it's doing good. If it were not, I should call it turning things upside down for very little purpose." the new vicar is a teetotaler miss and a magistrate and his wife has a deal of receipts for economical cooking and is for making bread without yeast and they both talk so much and both at a time that they knock one down as it were and it's not till they're gone and one's a little at peace that one can think that there were things one might have said on one's own side of the question he'll be after the men's cans in the hayfield and peeping in and then there will be an ado because it's not ginger-beer but i can't help it my mother and my grandmother before me sent good malt liquor to haymakers and took salts and senna when anything ailed them and i must e'en go on in their ways though mrs hepworth does want to give me comforts instead of medicine which as she says is a deal pleasanter only i've no faith in it but i must go miss though i'm wanting to hear many a thing i'll come back to you before long Mr. Bell had strawberries and cream, a loaf of brown bread, and a jug of milk, together with a Stilton cheese and a bottle of port for his own private refreshment, ready for Margaret on her coming downstairs, and after this rustic luncheon they set out on a walk, hardly knowing in what direction to turn, so many old familiar inducements were there in each. "'Shall we go past the vicarage?' asked Mr. Bell. "'No, not yet.' We will go this way, and make a round so as to come back by it," replied Margaret. Here and there old trees had been felled the autumn before, or squatters roughly built and decaying cottage had disappeared. Margaret missed them each and all, and grieved over them like old friends. They came past the spot where she and Mr. Lennox had sketched. The white, lightning-scarred trunk of the venerable beech, among whose roots they had sat down, was there no more the old man, the inhabitant of the ruinous cottage, was dead. The cottage had been pulled down, and a new one, tidy and respectable, had been built in its stead. There was a small garden on the place where the beech-tree had been. "'I did not think I had been so old,' said Margaret, after a pause of silence, and she turned away, sighing. "'Yes,' said Mr. Bell. "'it is the first changes among familiar things that make such a mystery of time to the young.' afterwards we lose the sense of the mysterious i take changes in all i see as a matter of course the instability of all human things is familiar to me to you it is new and oppressive let us go and see little susan said margaret drawing her companion up a grassy roadway leading under the shadow of a forest glade with all my heart though i have not an idea who little susan may be but i have a kindness for all susans for simple Susan's sake. My little Susan was disappointed when I left without wishing her good-bye, and it has been on my conscience ever since that I gave her pain, which a little more exertion on my part might have prevented. But it is a long way. Are you sure you will not be tired? Quite sure. That is, if you don't walk so fast. You see, here there are no views that can give one an excuse for stopping to take breath." You would think it romantic to be walking with a person faint and scant of breath, if I were Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Have compassion on my infirmities, for his sake. I will walk slower for your own sake. I like you twenty times better than Hamlet. On the principle that a living ass is better than a dead lion? Perhaps so. I don't analyze my feelings. I am content with your liking me, without examining too curiously into the materials it is made of only we need not walk at a snail's pace very well walk at your own pace and i will follow or stop and meditate like the hamlet you compare yourself to if i go too fast thank you but as my mother has not murdered my father and afterwards married my uncle i shouldn't know what to think about unless it were balancing the chances of our having a well-cooked dinner or not what do you think i am in good hopes She used to be considered a famous cook as far as Hellstone opinion went. But have you considered the distraction of mind produced by all this haymaking? Margaret felt all Mr. Bell's kindness in trying to make cheerful talk about nothing, to endeavor to prevent her from thinking too curiously about the past. But she would rather have gone over those dear-loved walks in silence, if indeed she were not ungrateful enough to wish that she might have been alone. They reached the cottage where Susan's widowed mother lived, Susan was not there. She was gone to the parochial school. Margaret was disappointed, and the poor woman saw it, and began to make a kind of apology. "'Oh, it is quite right,' said Margaret. "'I am very glad to hear it. I might have thought of it. Only she used to stop at home with you.' "'Yes, she did, and I miss her sadly. I used to teach her what little I knew at nights. It were not much, to be sure, but she were getting such a handy girl that I miss her sore.' but she's a deal above me in learning now.' And the mother sighed. "'I'm all wrong,' growled Mr. Bell. "'Don't mind what I say. I'm a hundred years behind the world. But I should say that the child was getting a better and simpler and more natural education stopping at home and helping her mother, and learning to read a chapter in the New Testament every night by her side, than from all the schooling under the sun.' Margaret did not want to encourage him, to go on by replying to him, and so prolonging the discussion before the mother. So she turned to her and asked, "'How is old Betty Barnes?' "'I don't know,' said the woman rather shortly. "'We's not friends.' "'Why not?' asked Margaret, who had formerly been the peacemaker in the village. "'She stole my cat.' "'Did she know it was yours?' "'I don't know. I reckon not.' "'Well, could you not get it back again, when you told her it was yours?' No, for she'd burnt it. Burnt it? exclaimed both Margaret and Mr. Bell. Roasted it, explained the woman. It was no explanation. By dint of questioning, Margaret extracted from her the horrible fact that Betty Barnes, having been induced by a gypsy fortune-teller to lend the latter her husband's Sunday clothes on promise of having them faithfully returned on the Saturday night before Goodman Barnes should have missed them, became alarmed at their non-appearance and her consequent dread of her husband's anger, and as, according to one of these savage country superstitions, the cries of a cat, in the agonies of being boiled or roasted alive, compelled, as it were, the powers of darkness to fulfill the wishes of the executioner, resort had been had to the charm. The poor woman evidently believed in its efficacy. Her only feeling was indignation that her cat had been chosen out from all others for a sacrifice margaret listened in horror and endeavoured in vain to enlighten the woman's mind but she was obliged to give it up in despair step by step she got the woman to admit certain facts of which the logical connection and sequence was perfectly clear to margaret but at the end the bewildered woman simply repeated her first assertion namely that it were very cruel for sure and she should not like to do it but that there was nothing like it for giving a person what they wished for she had heard it all her life but it were very cruel for all that." Margaret gave it up in despair, and walked away sick at heart. "'You are a good girl not to triumph over me,' said Mr. Bell. "'How? What do you mean?' "'I own I am wrong about schooling—anything, rather than have that child brought up in such practical paganism.' "'Oh, I remember. Poor little Susan. I must go and see her. Would you mind calling at the school?" "'Not a bit. I am curious to see something of the teaching she is to receive." They did not speak much more, but threaded their way through many a bosky dell, whose soft green influence could not charm away the shock and the pain in Margaret's heart caused by the recital of such cruelty—a recital, too, the manner of which betrayed such utter want of imagination, and therefore of any sympathy with the suffering animal. The buzz of voices, like the murmur of a hive of busy human bees, made itself heard as soon as they emerged from the forest, on the more open village green on which the school was situated. The door was wide open, and they entered. A brisk lady in black, here, there, and everywhere, perceived them, and bade them welcome with somewhat of the hostess air, which, Margaret remembered, her mother was wont to assume, only in a more soft and languid manner when any rare visitors strayed in to inspect the school. She knew at once it was the present vicar's wife, her mother's successor, and she would have drawn back from the interview had it been possible, but in an instant she had conquered this feeling, and modestly advanced, meeting many a bright glance of recognition, and hearing many a half-suppressed murmur of, "'It's Miss Hale!' The vicar's lady heard the name, and her manner at once became more kindly. Margaret wished, she could have helped feeling, that it also became more patronizing. The lady held out a hand to Mr. Bell with, "'Your father, I presume, Miss Hale. I see it by the likeness. I am sure I am very glad to see you, sir, and so will the vicar be.' Margaret explained that it was not her father, and stammered out the fact of his death, wondering all the time how Mr. Hale could have borne coming to revisit Helstone, if it had been as the vicar's lady supposed.' She did not hear what Mrs. Hepworth was saying, and left it to Mr. Bell to reply, looking round, meanwhile, for her old acquaintances. "'Ah, I see you would like to take a class, Miss Hale. I know it by myself. First class, stand up for a parsing lesson with Miss Hale.' Poor Margaret, whose visit was sentimental, not in any degree inspective, felt herself taken in, but as in some way bringing her in contact with little eager faces— once well known and who had received the solemn rite of baptism from her father she sat down half losing herself in tracing out the changing features of the girls and holding susan's hand for a minute or two unobserved by all while the first class sought for their books and the vicar's lady went as near as a lady could towards holding mr bell by the button while she explained the phonetic system to him and gave him a conversation she had had with the inspector about it Margaret bent over her book, and seeing nothing but that, hearing the buzz of children's voices, old times rose up, and she thought of them, and her eyes filled with tears, till all at once there was a pause. One of the girls was stumbling over the apparently simple word, A, uncertain what to call it. "'A, an indefinite article,' said Margaret mildly. "'I beg your pardon,' said the vicar's wife, all eyes and ears.' BUT WE ARE TAUGHT BY MR. MILSOM TO CALL A, AN—' WHO CAN REMEMBER?' "'An adjective absolute,' said a half-dozen a dozen voices at once, and Margaret sat abashed. The children knew more than she did. Mr. Bell turned away, and smiled. Margaret spoke no more during the lesson, but after it was over she went quietly round to one or two old favourites, and talked to them a little. They were growing out of children into great girls, passing out of her recollection in their rapid development, as she, by her three years' absence, was vanishing from theirs. Still, she was glad to have seen them all again, though a tinge of sadness mixed itself with her pleasure. When school was over for the day, it was yet early in the summer afternoon, and Mrs. Hepworth proposed to Margaret that she and Mr. Bell should accompany her to the parsonage, and see the the word improvements had half slipped out of her mouth but she substituted the more cautious term alterations which the present vicar was making margaret did not care a straw about seeing the alterations which jarred upon her fond recollection of what her home had been but she longed to see the old place once more even though she shivered away from the pain which she knew she would feel the parsonage was so altered both inside and out that the real pain was less than she had anticipated. It was not like the same place. The garden, the grass-plat, formerly so daintily trim that even a stray rose-leaf seemed like a fleck on its exquisite arrangement and propriety, was strewed with children's things. A bag of marbles here, a hoop there, a straw hat forced down upon a rose-tree as on a peg, to the destruction of a long beautiful tender branch laden with flowers. "'which in former days would have been trained up tenderly, as if beloved. "'The little square matted hall was equally filled with signs of merry, healthy, rough childhood. "'Ah,' said Mrs. Hepworth, "'you must excuse this untidiness, Miss Hale. "'When the nursery is finished, I shall insist upon a little order. "'We are building a nursery out of your room, I believe. "'How did you manage, Miss Hale, without a nursery?' "'We were but two,' said Margaret." YOU HAVE MANY CHILDREN, I PRESUME. SEVEN. LOOK HERE. WE ARE THROWING OUT A WINDOW TO THE ROAD ON THIS SIDE. MR. HEPWORTH IS SPENDING AN IMMENSE DEAL OF MONEY ON THIS HOUSE, BUT REALLY IT WAS SCARCELY HABITABLE WHEN WE CAME. FOR SO LARGE A FAMILY AS OURS, I MEAN, OF COURSE. EVERY ROOM IN THE HOUSE WAS CHANGED, BESIDES THE ONE OF WHICH Mrs. HEPWORTH SPOKE, WHICH HAD BEEN MR. HALES' STUDY FORMERLY, AND WHERE THE GREEN GLOOM AND DELICIOUS QUIET OF THE PLACE HAD CONDUCED, AS HE HAD SAID, to a habit of meditation, but, perhaps, in some degree to the formation of a character more fitted for thought than action. The new window gave a view of the road, and had many advantages, as Mrs. Hepworth pointed out. From it the wandering sheep of her husband's flock might be seen, who straggled to the tempting beer-house, unobserved as they might hope, but not unobserved in reality, for the active vicar kept his eye on the road even during the composition of his most orthodox sermons, and had a hat and stick hanging ready at hand to seize, before sallying out after his parishioners, who had need of quick legs, if they could take refuge in the jolly forester, before the teetotal vicar had arrested them. The whole family were quick, brisk, loud-talking, kind-hearted, and not troubled with much delicacy of perception. Margaret feared that Mrs. Hepworth would find out that Mr. Bell was playing upon her, in the admiration he thought fit to express for everything that especially grated on his taste but no she took it all literally and with such good faith that margaret could not help remonstrating with him as they walked slowly away from the parsonage back to their inn don't scold margaret it was all because of you if she had not shown you every change with such evident exultation in their superior sense in perceiving what an improvement this and that would be I could have behaved well. But if you must go on preaching, keep it till after dinner, when it will send me to sleep, and help my digestion." They were both of them tired, and Margaret herself so much so, that she was unwilling to go out as she had proposed to do, and have another ramble among the woods and fields so close to the home of her childhood. And, somehow, this visit to Helstone had not been all—had not been exactly what she had expected. There was change everywhere slight, yet pervading all. Households were changed by absence, or death, or marriage, or the natural mutations brought by days and months and years, which carry us on imperceptibly from childhood to youth, and thence through manhood to age, whence we drop like fruit fully ripe into the quiet mother earth. Places were changed, a tree gone here, a bough there, bringing in a long ray of light where no light was before. A road was trimmed and narrowed, and the green straggling pathway by its side enclosed and cultivated. A great improvement it was called, but Margaret sighed of the old picturesqueness, the old gloom, and the grassy wayside of former days. She sat by the window on the little settle, sadly gazing out upon the gathering shades of night, which harmonized well with her pensive thought. Mr. Bell slept soundly, after his unusual exercise through the day, at last he was roused by the entrance of the tea-tray brought in by a flushed-looking country girl who had evidently been finding some variety from her usual occupation of waiter in assisting this day in the hayfield hallo who's there where are we who's that margaret oh now i remember all i could not imagine what woman was sitting there in such a doleful attitude with her hands clasped straight out upon her knees and her face looking so steadfastly before her. "'What were you looking at?' asked Mr. Bell, coming to the window and standing behind Margaret. "'Nothing,' she said, rising up quickly and speaking as cheerfully as she could at a moment's notice. "'Nothing, indeed. A bleak background of trees, some white linen hung out on the sweet briar-hedge, and a great waft of damp air. Shut the window, and come in and make tea.' Margaret was silent for some time. She played with her teaspoon, and did not attend particularly to what Mr. Bell said. He contradicted her, and she took the same sort of smiling notice of his opinion as if he had agreed with her. Then she sighed, and putting down her spoon, she began, apropos of nothing at all, and in the high-pitched voice which usually shows that the speaker has been thinking for some time on the subject that they wish to introduce. "'Mr. Bell,' You remember what we were saying about Frederick last night, don't you? Last night. Where was I? Oh, I remember. Why, it seems a week ago. Yes, to be sure. I recollect we talked about him, poor fellow. Yes. And do you not remember that Mr. Lennox spoke about his having been in England, about the time of dear Mamma's death? asked Margaret, her voice now lower than usual. I recollect. I hadn't heard of it before. And I thought, I always thought that Papa had told you about it. No, he never did. But what about it, Margaret? I want to tell you of something I did that was very wrong, about that time, said Margaret, suddenly looking up at him with her clear, honest eyes. I told a lie, and her face became scarlet. True, that was bad, I own not but what i have told a pretty round number in my life not all in downright words as i suppose you did but in actions or in some circumlocutory way leading people either to disbelieve the truth or believe a falsehood you know who is the father of lies margaret well a great number of folk thinking themselves very good have odd sorts of connection with lies left-hand marriages and second cousins once removed the tainting blood of falsehood runs through us all. I should have guessed you as far from it as most people. What? Crying, child? Nay, now we'll not talk of it, if it ends in this way. I dare say you have been sorry for it, and that you won't do it again. And it's long ago now, and in short, I want you to be very cheerful, and not very sad, this evening." Margaret wiped her eyes and tried to talk about something else, but suddenly she burst out afresh. "'Please, Mr. Bell, let me tell you about it. You could perhaps help me a little—no, not help me, but if you knew the truth, perhaps you could put me to rights.' "'That is not it, after all,' said she, in despair at not being able to express herself more exactly as she wished. Mr. Bell's whole manner changed.' tell me all about it child said he it's a long story but when fred came mamma was very ill and i was undone with anxiety and afraid too that i might have drawn him into danger and we had an alarm just after her death for dixon met someone in milton a man called leonards who had known fred and who seemed to owe him a grudge or at any rate to be tempted by the recollection of the reward offered for his apprehension and with this new fright I thought I had better hurry off Fred to London, where, as you would understand from what we said the other night, he was to go to consult Mr. Lennox, as to his chances if he stood the trial. So we, that is, he and I, went to the railway station. It was one evening, and it was just getting rather dusk, but still light enough to recognize and be recognized, and we were too early, and we went out to walk in a field just close by, I was always in a panic about this Leonard's, who was, I knew, somewhere in the neighborhood. And then, when we were in the field, the low red sunlight just in my face, someone came by on horseback in the road, just below the field stile, by which we stood. I saw him look at me, but I did not know who it was at first. The sun was in my eyes. But in an instant the dazzle went off, and I saw it was Mr. Thornton, and we bowed. "'And he saw Frederick, of course,' said Mr. Bell, helping her on with her story, as he thought. "'Yes. And then at the station a man came up, tipsy and reeling, and he tried to collar Fred, and overbalanced himself as Fred wrenched himself away, and fell over the edge of the platform. Not far. Not deep. Not above three feet. But, oh, Mr. Bell, somehow that fall killed him.' How awkward! It was this Leonard's, I suppose. And how did Fred get off? Oh, he went off immediately after the fall, which we never thought could have done the poor fellow any harm. It seemed so slight an injury. Then he did not die directly. No, not for two or three days. And then—oh, Mr. Bell, now comes the bad part, said she, nervously twining her fingers together. A police inspector came and taxed me with having been the companion of the young man, whose push or blow had occasioned Leonard's death. That was a false accusation, you know. But we had not heard that Fred had sailed. He might still be in London and liable to be arrested on this false charge, and his identity with the Lieutenant Hale, accused of causing that mutiny, discovered he might be shot. All this flashed through my mind, and I said it was not me. I was not at the railway station that night. I knew nothing about it. I had no conscience or thought but to save Frederick." "'I say it was right. I should have done the same thing. You forgot yourself in thought for another. I hope I should have done the same.'" "'No, you would not. It was wrong, disobedient, faithless. At that very time Fred was safely out of England and in my blindness I forgot that there was another witness who could testify to my being there. Who? Mr. Thornton. You know he had seen me close to the station. We had bowed to each other. Well, he would know nothing of this riot about the drunken fellow's death. I suppose the inquiry never came to anything. No. The proceedings they had begun to talk about on the inquest were stopped, Mr. Thornton did know all about it. He was a magistrate, and he found out that it was not the fall that caused the death, but not before he knew what I had said. "'Oh, Mr. Bell!' She suddenly covered her face with her hands, as if wishing to hide herself in the presence of the recollection. "'Did you have any explanation with him? Did you ever tell him the strong, instinctive motive?' THE INSTINCTIVE WANT OF FAITH, AND CLUTCHING AT A SIN TO KEEP MYSELF FROM SINKING, SHE SAID BITTERLY. NO. HOW COULD I? HE KNEW NOTHING OF FREDERICK. TO PUT MYSELF TO RIGHTS IN HIS GOOD OPINION WAS I TO TELL HIM OF THE SECRETS OF OUR FAMILY, INVOLVING, AS THEY SEEMED TO DO, THE CHANCES OF POOR FREDERICK'S ENTIRE EXCULPATION. FRED'S LAST WORDS HAD BEEN TO enjoin ME TO KEEP HIS VISIT A SECRET FROM ALL. You see papa never told even you no i could bear the shame i thought i could at least i did bear it mr thornton has never respected me since he respects you i am sure said mr bell to be sure it accounts a little for but he always speaks of you with regard and esteem though now I understand certain reservations in his manner. Margaret did not speak, did not attend to what Mr. Bell went on to say, lost all sense of it. By and by, she said, Will you tell me what you refer to about reservations in his manner of speaking of me? Oh, simply, he has annoyed me by not joining in my praises of you, Like an old fool I thought that everyone would have the same opinions as I had, and he evidently could not agree with me. I was puzzled at the time, but he must be perplexed if the affair has never been in the least explained. There was first your walking out with a young man in the dark. "'But it was my brother,' said Margaret, surprised. "'True. But how was he to know that?' "'I don't know. I never thought of anything of that kind,' said Margaret." reddening, and looking hurt and offended. And perhaps he never would, but for the lie, which, under the circumstances I maintain, was necessary. It was not. I know it now. I bitterly repent it. There was a long pause of silence. Margaret was the first to speak. I am not likely ever to see Mr. Thornton again. And there she stopped. "'There are many things more unlikely, I should say,' replied Mr. Bell. "'But I believe I never shall. Still, somehow one does not like to have sunk so low in—in a friend's opinion, as I have done in his.' Her eyes were full of tears, but her voice was steady, and Mr. Bell was not looking at her. And now that Frederick has given up all hope and almost all wish of ever clearing himself and returning to England—' it would only be doing myself justice to have all this explained. If you please, and if you can, if there is a good opportunity, don't force an explanation upon him, pray, but if you can, will you tell him the whole circumstances, and tell him also that I gave you leave to do so, because I felt that for Papa's sake I should not like to lose his respect, though we may never be likely to meet again?' "'Certainly.' I think he ought to know. I do not like you to rest even under the shadow of an impropriety. He would not know what to think of seeing you alone with the young man." "'As for that,' said Margaret, rather haughtily, "'I hold it is, honi soit qui mal i pense, yet I should choose to have it explained, if any natural opportunity for easy explanation occurs.' but it is not to clear myself of any suspicion of improper conduct that i wish to have him told if i thought that he had suspected me i should not care for his good opinion no it is that he may learn how i was tempted and how i fell into the snare why i told that falsehood in short which i don't blame you for it is no partiality of mine i assure you what other people think of the rightness or wrongness is nothing in comparison to my own deep knowledge, my innate conviction that it was wrong. But we will not talk of it any more, if you please. It is done. My sin is sinned. I have now to put it behind me, and be truthful evermore, if I can. Very well. If you like to be comfortable and morbid, be so i always keep my conscience as tight shut up as a jack-in-the-box for when it jumps into existence it surprises me by its size so i coax it down again as the fisherman coaxed the genie wonderful say i to think that you have been concealed so long and in so small a compass that i really did not know of your existence pray sir instead of growing larger and larger every instant and bewildering me with your misty outlines would you once more compress yourself into your former dimensions? And when I've got him down, don't I clap the seal on the vase, and take good care how I open it again, and how I go against Solomon, wisest of men, who can find him there. But it was no smiling matter to Margaret. She hardly attended to what Mr. Bell was saying. Her thoughts ran upon the idea, before entertained, but which now had assumed the strength of a conviction that mr thornton no longer held his former good opinion of her that he was disappointed in her she did not feel as if any explanation could ever reinstate her not in his love for that and any return on her part she had resolved never to dwell upon and she kept rigidly to her resolution but in the respect and high regard which she had hoped would have ever made him willing in the spirit of gerald griffin's beautiful lines to turn and look back when thou hearest the sound of my name." She kept choking and swallowing all the time that she thought about it. She tried to comfort herself with the idea that what he imagined her to be did not alter the fact of what she was. But it was a truism, a phantom, and broke down under the weight of her regret. She had twenty questions on the tip of her tongue to ask Mr. Bell, but not one of them did she utter. Mr. Bell thought that she was tired, and sent her early to her room, where she sat long hours by the open window, gazing out on the purple dome above, where the stars arose and twinkled and disappeared, behind the great, umbrageous trees, before she went to bed. All night long, too, there burnt a little light on earth, a candle in her old bedroom, which was the nursery, with the present inhabitants of the parsonage, until the new one was built a sense of change, of individual nothingness, of perplexity and disappointment, overpowered Margaret. Nothing had been the same, and this slight, all-pervading instability had given her greater pain than if all had been too entirely changed for her to recognize it. I begin to understand now what heaven must be, and, oh, the grandeur and repose of the words, the same yesterday, today, and forever. ever Everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That sky above me looks as though it could not change, and yet it will. I am so tired, so tired of being whirled on through all these phases of my life, in which nothing abides by me, no creature, no place. It is like the circle in which the victims of earthly passion eddy continually. I am in the mood in which women of another religion take the veil. I seek heavenly steadfastness in earthly monotony. If I were a Roman Catholic and could deaden my heart, stun it with some great blow, I might become a nun. But I should pine after my kind. No, not my kind, for love for my species could never fill my heart to the utter exclusion of love for individuals. Perhaps it ought to be so. Perhaps not. I cannot decide tonight. Wearily she went to bed. Wearily she arose in four or five hours' time, but with the morning came hope and a brighter view of things. "'After all, it is right,' said she, hearing the voices of children at play while she was dressing if the world stood still, it would retrograde and become corrupt, if that is not Irish. Looking out of myself, and my own painful sense of change, the progress all around me is right and necessary. I must not think so much of how circumstances affect me myself, but how they affect others, if I wish to have a right judgment, or a hopeful, trustful heart. And with a smile ready in her eyes to quiver down to her lips, she went to the parlour and greeted Mr. Bell. "'Ah, Missy, you were up late last night, and so you're late this morning. Now, I've got a little piece of news for you. What do you think of an invitation to dinner? A morning call, literally, in the dewy morning. Why, I've had the vicar here already, on his way to the school.' How much the desire of giving our hostess a teetotal lecture for the benefit of the haymakers had to do with his earliness, I don't know. But here he was, when I came down just before nine, and we are asked to dine there to-day. But Edith expects me back. I cannot go, said Margaret, thankful to have so good an excuse. Yes, I know. So I told him. I thought you would not want to go. Still, it is open, if you would like it oh no said margaret let us keep to our plan let us start at twelve it is very good and kind of them but indeed i could not go very well don't fidget yourself and i'll arrange it all before they left margaret stole round to the back of the vicarage garden and gathered a little straggling piece of honeysuckle she would not take a flower the day before for fear of being observed and her motives and feelings commented upon but as she returned across the common, the place was reinvested with the old enchanting atmosphere. The common sounds of life were more musical there than anywhere else in the whole world, the light more golden, the life more tranquil and full of dreamy delight. As Margaret remembered her feelings yesterday, she said to herself, "'And I, too, change perpetually. Now this, now that.'" Now disappointed and peevish, because all is not exactly as I had pictured it, and now suddenly discovering that the reality is far more beautiful than I had imagined it. Oh, Hellstone, I shall never love any place like you. A few days afterwards she had found her level, and decided that she was glad to have been there, and that she had seen it again, and that to her it would always be the prettiest spot in the world but that it was so full of associations with former days, and especially with her father and mother, that if it were all to come over again, she should shrink back from such another visit as that which she had paid with Mr. Bell. End of chapter 46 CHAPTER 47 OF NORTH AND SOUTH By Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Forty-Seven. Something wanting. Experience, like a pale musician, holds a dulcimer of patience in his hand, whence harmonies we cannot understand. Of God's will in His worlds, the strain unfolds in sad, perplexing minors. Mrs. Browning. About this time Dixon returned from Milton and assumed her post as Margaret's maid. She brought endless pieces of Milton gossip. How Martha had gone to live with Miss Thornton on the latter's marriage, with an account of the bridesmaids, dresses, and breakfasts, at that interesting ceremony. How people thought that Mr. Thornton had made too grand a wedding of it, considering he had lost a deal by the strike, and had had to pay so much for the failure of his contracts. How little money articles of furniture— long cherished by Dixon, had fetched at the sale, which was a shame considering how rich folks were at Milton. How Mrs. Thornton had come one day and got two or three good bargains, and Mr. Thornton had come the next, and in his desire to obtain one or two things had bid against himself, much to the enjoyment of the bystanders. So, as Dixon observed, that made things even. If Mrs. Thornton paid too little, Mr. Thornton paid too much, Mr. Bell had sent all sorts of orders about the books. There was no understanding him. He was so particular. If he had come himself it would have been all right, but letters always were and always will be more puzzling than they are worth. Dixon had not much to tell about the Higginses. Her memory had an aristocratic bias, and was very treacherous whenever she tried to recall any circumstance connected with those below her in life. Nicholas was very well, she believed, he had been several times at the house asking for news of miss margaret the only person who ever did ask except once mr thornton and mary oh of course she was very well a great stout slatternly thing she did hear or perhaps it was only a dream of hers though it would be strange if she had dreamt of such people as the higginses that mary had gone to work at mr thornton's mill because her father wished her to know how to cook but what nonsense that could mean she didn't know margaret rather agreed with her that the story was incoherent enough to be like a dream still it was pleasant to have some one now with whom she could talk of milton and milton people dixon was not over fond of the subject rather wishing to leave that part of her life in shadow she liked much more to dwell upon speeches of mr bell's which had suggested an idea to her of what was really his intention making margaret his heiress but her young lady gave no encouragement nor in any way gratified her insinuating inquiries however disguised in the form of suspicions or assertions all this time margaret had a strange undefined longing to hear that mr bell had gone to pay one of his business visits to milton for it had been well understood between them at the time of their conversation at hellstone that the explanation she had desired should only be given to mr thornton by word of mouth and even in that manner should be in no wise forced upon him mr bell was no great correspondent but he wrote from time to time long or short letters as the humour took him and although margaret was not conscious of any definite hope on receiving them yet she always put away his notes with a little feeling of disappointment he was not going to milton he said nothing about it at any rate well, she must be patient. Sooner or later the miss would be cleared away. Mr. Bell's letters were hardly like his usual self. They were short, and complaining, with every now and then a little touch of bitterness that was unusual. He did not look forward to the future. He rather seemed to regret the past, and be weary of the present. Margaret fancied that he could not be well, but in answer to some inquiry of hers as to his health he sent her a short note saying there was an old-fashioned complaint called the spleen, that he was suffering from that, and it was for her to decide if it was more mental or physical, but that he should like to indulge himself in grumbling, without being obliged to send a bulletin every time. In consequence of this note, Margaret made no more inquiries about his health. One day Edith let out accidentally a fragment of a conversation which she had had with Mr. Bell when he was last in London— which possessed Margaret with the idea that he had some notion of taking her to pay a visit to her brother and new sister-in-law, at Cadiz, in the autumn. She questioned, and cross-questioned Edith, till the latter was weary, and declared that there was nothing more to remember. All he had said was that he half thought he should go, and hear for himself what Frederick had to say about the mutiny, and that it would be a good opportunity for Margaret to become acquainted with her new sister-in-law." That he always went somewhere during the long vacation and did not see why he should not go to spain as well as anywhere else that was all edith hoped margaret did not want to leave them that she was so anxious about all this and then having nothing else particular to do she cried and said that she knew she cared more for margaret than margaret did for her margaret comforted her as well as she could but she could hardly explain to her how this idea of spain A mere Chateau in Espana, as it might be, charmed and delighted her. Edith was in the mood to think that any pleasure enjoyed away from her was a tacit affront, or at best a proof of indifference. So Margaret had to keep her pleasure to herself, and could only let it escape by the safety-valve of asking Dixon, when she dressed for dinner, if she would not like to see Master Frederick and his new wife very much indeed. "'She's a papist, miss, isn't she?' i believe oh yes certainly said margaret a little damped for an instant at this recollection and they live in a popish country yes then i am afraid i must say that my soul is dearer to me than even master frederick his own dear self i should be in a perpetual terror miss lest i should be converted oh said margaret i do not know that i am going and if i go I am not such a fine lady as to be unable to travel without you. No. Dear old Dixon, you shall have a long holiday, if we go. But I am afraid it is a long if." Now Dixon did not like this speech. In the first place she did not like Margaret's trick of calling her dear old Dixon, whenever she was particularly demonstrative. She knew that Miss Hale was apt to call all people that she liked old, as a sort of term of endearment, but Dixon always winced away from the application of the word to herself, who, being not much past fifty, was, she thought, in the very prime of life. Secondly, she did not like being so easily taken at her word. She had, with all her terror, a lurking curiosity about Spain, the Inquisition, and Popish mysteries. So after clearing her throat, as if to show her willingness to do away with difficulties, she asked Miss Hale whether she thought, if she took care never to see a priest or enter into one of their churches there would be so very much danger of her being converted master frederick to be sure had gone over unaccountable i fancy that it was love that first predisposed him to conversion said margaret sighing indeed miss said dixon well i can preserve myself from priests and from churches but love steals in unawares i think it's as well i should not go margaret was afraid of letting her mind run too much upon this spanish plan but it took off her thoughts from too impatiently dwelling upon her desire to have all explained to mr thornton mr bell appeared for the present to be stationary at oxford and to have no immediate purpose of going to milton and some secret restraint seemed to hang over margaret and prevent her from even asking or alluding again to any probability of such a visit on his part nor did she feel at liberty to name what edith had told her of the idea he had entertained it might be but for five minutes of going to spain he had never named it at hellstone during all that sunny day of leisure it was very probably but the fancy of a moment but if it were true what a bright outlet it would be from the monotony of her present life which was beginning to fall upon her one of the great pleasures of Margaret's life at this time was in Edith's boy. He was the pride and plaything of both father and mother, as long as he was good. But he had a strong will of his own, and as soon as he burst out into one of his stormy passions, Edith would throw herself back in despair and fatigue, and sigh out, "'Oh, dear, what shall I do with him? Do, Margaret, please ring the bell for Hanley.' But Margaret almost liked him better in these manifestations of character than in his good blue-sashed moods. She would carry him off into a room, where they two alone battled it out. She with a firm power which subdued him into peace, while every sudden charm and while she possessed, was exerted on the side of right, until he would rub his little hot and tear-smeared face all over hers, kissing and caressing till he often fell asleep in her arms or on her shoulder these were Margaret's sweetest moments. They gave her a taste of the feelings that she believed would be denied to her for ever. Mr. Henry Lennox added a new and not disagreeable element to the course of the household life by his frequent presence. Margaret thought him colder, if more brilliant than formerly, but there were strong intellectual tastes and much and varied knowledge which gave flavour to the otherwise rather insipid conversation. Margaret saw glimpses in him of a slight contempt for his brother and sister-in-law and for their mode of life, which he seemed to consider as frivolous and purposeless. He once or twice spoke to his brother in Margaret's presence in a pretty sharp tone of inquiry as to whether he meant entirely to relinquish his profession, and on Captain Lennox's reply that he had quite enough to live upon, she had seen Mr. Lennox's curl of the lip as he said, And that is all you live for? but the brothers were much attached to each other in the way that any two persons are when the one is cleverer and always leads the other and this last is patiently content to be led mr lennox was pushing on in his profession cultivating with profound calculation all those connections that might eventually be of service to him keen-sighted far-seeing intelligent sarcastic and proud Since the one long conversation relating to Frederick's affairs, which she had with him the first evening in Mr. Bell's presence, she had had no great intercourse with him, further than that which arose out of their close relations with the same household. But this was enough to wear off the shyness on her side, and any symptoms of mortified pride and vanity on his. They met continually, of course, but she thought that he rather avoided being alone with her. She fancied that he— as well as she, perceived that they had drifted strangely apart from their former anchorage, side by side, in many of their opinions, and all their tastes. And yet, when he had spoken unusually well, or with remarkable epigrammatic point, she felt that his eye sought the expression of her countenance first of all, if but for an instant, and that, in the family intercourse which constantly threw them together, Her opinion was the one to which he listened with a deference, the more complete, because it was reluctantly paid, and concealed as much as possible. End of chapter 47 Chapter 48 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Chapter 48 ne'er to be found again my own my father's friend i cannot part with thee i ne'er have shown thou ne'er hast known how dear thou art to me anonymous the elements of the dinner-parties which mrs lennox gave were these her friends contributed the beauty captain lennox the easy knowledge of the subjects of the day and Mr. Henry Lennox, and the sprinkling of rising men who were received as his friends, brought the wit, the cleverness, the keen and extensive knowledge of which they knew well enough how to avail themselves without seeming pedantic or burdening the rapid flow of conversation. These dinners were delightful, but even here Margaret's dissatisfaction found her out. Every talent, every feeling, every acquirement—nay, even every tendency towards virtue was used up as materials for fireworks. The hidden, sacred fire exhausted itself in sparkle and crackle. They talked about art in a merely sensuous way, dwelling on outside effects, instead of allowing themselves to learn what it has to teach. They lashed themselves up into an enthusiasm about high subjects and company, and never thought about them when they were alone. They squandered their capabilities of appreciation into a mere flow of appropriate words. One day, after the gentleman had come up into the drawing-room, Mr. Lennox drew near to Margaret and addressed her in almost the first voluntary words he had spoken to her since she had returned to live in Harley Street. "'You did not look pleased at what Shirley was saying at dinner.' "'Didn't I?' "'My face must be very expressive,' replied Margaret." it always was it has not lost the trick of being eloquent i did not like said margaret hastily his way of advocating what he knew to be wrong so glaringly wrong even in jest but it was very clever how every word told do you remember the happy epithets yes and despise them you would like to add pray don't scruple though he is my friend There that is the exact tone in you that—' She stopped short. He listened for a moment to see if she would finish her sentence, but she only reddened and turned away. Before she did so, however, she heard him say, in a very low, clear voice, "'If my tones, or modes of thought, are what you dislike, will you do me the justice to tell me so, and give me the chance of learning to please you?' all these weeks there was no intelligence of Mr. Bell's going to Milton. He had spoken of it at Hellstone as of a journey which he might have to take in a very short time from then, but he must have transacted his business by writing, Margaret thought, ere now, and she knew that if he could, he would avoid going to a place which he disliked, and moreover would little understand the secret importance which she affixed to the explanation that could only be given by word of mouth, She knew that he would feel that it was necessary that it should be done, but whether in summer, autumn, or winter, it would signify very little. It was now August, and there had been no mention of the Spanish journey to which he had alluded to Edith, and Margaret tried to reconcile herself to the fading away of this allusion. But one morning she received a letter, saying that next week he meant to come up to town. He wanted to see her about a plan which he had in his head, and, moreover, he intended to treat himself to a little doctoring, as he had begun to come round to her opinion, that it would be pleasanter to think that his health was more in fault than he, when he found himself irritable and cross. There was altogether a tone of forced cheerfulness in the letter, as Margaret noticed afterwards, but at the time her attention was taken up by Edith's exclamations. "'Coming up to town! Oh, dear!' and I am so worn out by the heat that I don't believe I have strength enough in me for another dinner. Besides, everybody has left but our dear stupid selves, who can't settle where to go. There would be nobody to meet him. I am sure he would much rather come and dine with us quite alone than with the most agreeable strangers you could pick up. Besides, if he is not well, he won't wish for invitations. I am glad he has owned it at last.' I was sure he was ill from the whole tone of his letters, and yet he would not answer me when I asked him, and I had no third person to whom I could apply for news. Oh, he is not very ill, or he would not think of Spain. He never mentions Spain. No, but his plan that is to be proposed evidently relates to that. But would you really go in such weather as this? Oh, it will get cooler every day yes think of it i'm only afraid i have thought and wished too much in that absorbing willful way which is sure to be disappointed or else gratified to the letter while in the spirit it gives no pleasure but that's superstitious i'm sure margaret no i don't think it is only it ought to warn me and check me from giving way to such passionate wishes it is a sort of give me children or else i die i'm afraid my cry is let me go to cadiz or else i die my dear margaret you'll be persuaded to stay there and then what shall i do oh i wish i could find somebody for you to marry here that i could be sure of you i shall never marry nonsense and double nonsense why as sholto says you're such an attraction to the house that he knows ever so many men who would be glad to visit here next year for your sake margaret drew herself up haughtily do you know edith i sometimes think your corfu life has taught you well just a shade or two of coarseness edith began to sob so bitterly and to declare so vehemently that margaret had lost all love for her and no longer looked upon her as a friend that Margaret came to think that she had expressed too harsh an opinion for the relief of her own wounded pride, and ended by being Edith's slave for the rest of the day, while that little lady, overcome by wounded feeling, lay like a victim on the sofa, heaving occasionally a profound sigh, till at last she fell asleep. Mr. Bell did not make his appearance even on the day to which he had for a second time deferred his visit. The next morning there came a letter from Wallace his servant, stating that his master had not been feeling well for some time, which had been the true reason of his putting off his journey, and that at the very time when he should have set out for London he had been seized with an apoplectic fit. It was, indeed, Wallace added, the opinion of the medical men that he could not survive the night, and more than probable that by the time Miss Hale received this letter his poor master would be no more." Margaret received this letter at breakfast-time, and turned very pale as she read it, then silently putting it into Edith's hands she left the room. Edith was terribly shocked as she read it, and cried in a sobbing, frightened, childish way, much to her husband's distress. Mrs. Shaw was breakfasting in her own room, and upon him devolved the task of reconciling his wife to the near contact into which she seemed to be brought with death for the first time that she could remember in her life. Here was a man who was to have dined with them to-day, lying dead, or dying instead. It was some time before she could think of Margaret. Then she started up, and followed her upstairs into her room. Dixon was packing up a few toilet articles, and Margaret was hastily putting on her bonnet, shedding tears all the time, and her hands trembling so that she could hardly tie the strings. "'Oh, dear Margaret!' "'How shocking! "'What are you doing? "'Are you going out? Sholto will telegraph or do anything you like. "'I'm going to Oxford. "'There is a train in half an hour. "'Dixon has offered to go with me, "'but I could have gone by myself. "'I must see him again. "'Besides, he may be better and want some care. "'He has been like a father to me. "'Don't stop me, Edith.' "'But I must!' mamma won't like it at all come and ask her about it margaret you don't know where you're going i should not mind if he had a house of his own but in his fellows rooms come to mamma and do ask her before you go it will not take a minute margaret yielded and lost her train in the suddenness of the event mrs shaw became bewildered and hysterical and so the precious time slipped by but there was another train in a couple of hours and after various discussions on propriety and impropriety it was decided that captain lennox should accompany margaret as the one thing to which she was constant was her resolution to go alone or otherwise by the next train whatever might be said of the propriety or impropriety of the step her father's friend her own friend was lying at the point of death and the thought of this came upon her with such vividness That she was surprised herself at the firmness with which she asserted something of her right to independence of action, and five minutes before the time for starting she found herself sitting in a railway carriage opposite to Captain Lennox. It was always a comfort to her to think that she had gone, though it was only to hear that he had died in the night. She saw the rooms that he had occupied, and associated them for ever after most fondly in her memory with the idea of her father, AND HIS ONE CHERISHED AND FAITHFUL FRIEND. THEY HAD PROMISED EDITH BEFORE STARTING THAT IF ALL ENDED AS THEY FEARED THEY WOULD RETURN TO DINNER, SO THAT LONG, LINGERING LOOK AROUND THE ROOM IN WHICH HER FATHER DIED HAD TO BE INTERRUPTED, AND A QUIET FAREWELL TAKEN OF THE KIND OLD FACE THAT HAD SO OFTEN COME OUT WITH PLEASANT WORDS AND MERRY QUIPS AND CRANKS. CAPTAIN Lennox FELL ASLEEP ON THEIR JOURNEY HOME and Margaret could cry at leisure, and bethink her of this fatal year, and all the woes it had brought to her. No sooner was she fully aware of one loss than another came, not to supersede her grief for the one before, but to reopen wounds and feelings scarcely healed. But at the sound of the tender voices of her aunt and Edith, of Mary Little Sholto's glee at her arrival, and at the sight of the well-lighted rooms, with their mistress pretty in her paleness and her eager, sorrowful interest, Margaret roused herself from her heavy trance of almost superstitious hopelessness and began to feel that even around her joy and gladness might gather. She had Edith's place on the sofa. Sholto was taught to carry Aunt Margaret's cup of tea very carefully to her, and by the time she went up to dress, She could thank God for having spared her dear old friend a long or a painful illness. But when night came, solemn night, and all the house was quiet, Margaret still sat watching the beauty of a London sky at such an hour, on such a summer evening. The faint pink reflection of earthly lights on the soft clouds that float tranquilly into the white moonlight, out of the warm glow which lies motionless around the horizon. Margaret's room had been the day-nursery of her childhood, just when it merged into girlhood, and when the feelings and conscience had been first awakened into full activity. On some such night as this, she remembered promising to herself to live as brave and noble a life as any heroine she ever read or heard of in a romance—a life sans puritan's sans reproach. It had seemed to her, then, that she had only to will, and such a life would be accomplished. And now she had learnt that not only to will, but also to pray, was a necessary condition in the truly heroic. Trusting to herself, she had fallen. It was a just consequence of her sin that all excuses for it, all temptation to it, should remain for ever unknown to the person in whose opinion it had sunk her the lowest she stood face to face at last with her sin. She knew it for what it was. Mr. Bell's kindly sophistry that nearly all men were guilty of equivocal actions, and that the motive ennobled the evil, had never had much real weight with her. Her own first thought of how, if she had known all, she might have fearlessly told the truth, seemed low and poor. Nay, even now, Her anxiety to have her character for truth, partially excused in Mr. Thornton's eyes, as Mr. Bell had promised to do, was a very small and petty consideration, now that she was afresh, taught by death, what life should be. If all the world spoke, acted, or kept silence with intent to deceive, if dearest interests were at stake, and dearest lives in peril, if no one should ever know of her truth or her falsehood to measure out their honor or contempt for her by, straight alone where she stood, in the presence of God, she prayed that she might have strength to speak and act the truth for evermore. End of chapter 48 Chapter 49 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by marianne chapter 49 breathing tranquillity and down the sunny beach she passes slowly with many doubtful pauses by the way grief hath an influence so hushed and holy hood is not margaret the heiress whispered edith to her husband as they were in their room alone at night after the sad journey to Oxford. She had pulled his tall head down and stood upon tiptoe, and implored him not to be shocked before she had ventured to ask this question. Captain Lennox was, however, quite in the dark. If he had ever heard, he had forgotten. It could not be much that a fellow of a small college had to leave, but he had never wanted her to pay for her board, and two hundred and fifty pounds a year was something ridiculous considering that she did not take wine. Edith came down upon her feet a little bit sadder, with a romance blown to pieces. A week afterwards she came prancing towards her husband and made him a low curtsy. "'I am right, and you are wrong, most noble captain. Margaret has had a lawyer's letter, and she is residuary legatee, the legacies being about two thousand pounds,' and the remainder about forty thousand, at the present value of property in Milton. Indeed! And how does she take her good fortune? Oh, it seems she knew she was to have it all along, only she had no idea it was so much. She looks very white and pale, and says she's afraid of it. But that's nonsense, you know, and will soon go off. I left mamma pouring congratulations down her throat, and stole away to tell you." It seemed to be supposed, by general consent, that the most natural thing was to consider Mr. Lennox, henceforward, as Margaret's legal adviser. She was so entirely ignorant of all forms of business that in nearly everything she had to refer to him. He chose out her attorney. He came to her with papers to be signed. He was never so happy as when teaching her of what, all these mysteries of the law, were the signs and types. Henry said Edith one day, archly. Do you know what I hope and expect all these long conversations with Margaret will end in? No, I don't, said he, reddening. And I desire you not to tell me. Oh, very well. Then I need not tell Sholto not to ask Mr. Montague so often to the house. Just as you choose, said he, with forced coolness. What you are thinking of may, or may not, happen. But this time, before I commit myself, I will see my ground clear. Ask whom you choose. It may not be very civil, Edith, but if you meddle in it, you will mar it. She has been very ferocious with me for a long time, and is only just beginning to thaw a little from her Zenobia ways. She has the making of a Cleopatra in her, if only she were a little more pagan. For my part," said Edith, a little maliciously, I am very glad she is a Christian. I know so very few." There was no Spain for Margaret that autumn, although to the last she hoped that some fortunate occasion would call Frederick to Paris, whither she could easily have met him with a convoy. Instead of Cadiz, she had to content herself with Cromer. To that place her Aunt Shaw and the Lennoxes were bound, they had all along wished her to accompany them, and consequently, with their characters, they made but lazy efforts to forward her own separate wish. Perhaps Cromer was, in one sense of the expression, the best for her. She needed bodily strengthening and bracing as well as rest. Among other hopes that had vanished was the hope, the trust she had had, that Mr. Bell would have given Mr. Thornton the simple facts of the family circumstances which had preceded the unfortunate accident, that led to Leonard's death. Whatever opinion, however changed it might be from what Mr. Thornton had once entertained, she had wished it to be based upon a true understanding of what she had done, and why she had done it. It would have been a pleasure to her, it would have given her rest on a point on which she should now all her life be restless, unless she could resolve not to think upon it. It was now so long after the time of these occurrences that there was no possible way of explaining them, save the one which she had lost by Mr. Bell's death. She must just submit, like many another, to be misunderstood. But, though reasoning herself into the belief that in this hers was no uncommon lot, her heart did not ache the less with longing that sometime, years and years hence, before he died at any rate, He might know how much she had been tempted. She thought that she did not want to hear that all was explained to him, if only she could be sure that he would know. But this wish was vain, like so many others, and when she had schooled herself into this conviction, she turned with all her heart and strength to the life that lay immediately before her and resolved to strive and make the best of that. She used to sit long hours upon the beach gazing intently on the waves as they chafed with perpetual motion against the pebbly shore or she looked out upon the more distant heave and sparkle against the sky and heard without being conscious of hearing the eternal psalm which went up continually she was soothed without knowing how or why listlessly she sat there on the ground her hands clasped round her knees while her aunt shaw did small shoppings and edith and captain lennox rode far and wide on shore and inland the nurses sauntering on with their charges would pass and repass her and wonder in whispers what she could find to look at so long day after day and when the family gathered at dinner-time margaret was so silent and absorbed that edith voted her moped and hailed the proposal of her husband's with great satisfaction that Mr. Henry Lennox should be asked to take Cromer for a week on his return from Scotland in October. But all this time for thought enabled Margaret to put events in their right places as to origin and significance, both as regarded her past life and her future. Those hours by the seaside were not lost, as any one might have seen who had the perception to read or the care to understand the look that Margaret's face was gradually acquiring. Mr. Henry Lennox was excessively struck by the change. "'The sea has done Miss Hale an immense deal of good, I should fancy,' said he, when she first left the room after his arrival in their family circle. "'She looks ten years younger than she did in Harley Street.' "'That's the bonnet I got her,' said Edith triumphantly. "'I knew it would suit her the moment I saw it.' I beg your pardon," said Mr. Lennox, in the half-contemptuous, half-indulgent tone he generally used to Edith. But I believe I know the difference between the charms of a dress and the charms of a woman. No mere bonnet would have made Miss Hale's eyes so lustrous and yet so soft, or her lips so ripe and red, and her face altogether so full of peace and light. She is like, and yet more he dropped his voice, like the Margaret Hale of Helstone. From this time the clever and ambitious man bent all his powers to gaining Margaret. He loved her sweet beauty. He saw the latent sweep of her mind, which could easily, he thought, be led to embrace all the objects on which he had set his heart. He looked upon her fortune only as a part of the complete and superb character of herself and her position yet he was fully aware of the rise which it would immediately enable him, the poor barrister, to take. Eventually he would earn such success and such honours as would enable him to pay her back, with interest, that first advance in wealth which he should owe to her. He had been to Milton on business connected with her property, on his return from Scotland, and with the quick eye of a skilled lawyer ready ever to take in and weigh contingencies. He had seen that much additional value was yearly accruing to the lands and tenements which she owned in that prosperous and increasing town. He was glad to find that the present relationship between Margaret and himself, of client and legal adviser, was gradually superseding the recollection of that unlucky, mismanaged day at Hellstone. He had thus unusual opportunities of intimate intercourse with her, besides those that arose from the connection between the families. Margaret was only too willing to listen as long as he talked of Milton, though he had seen none of the people whom she more especially knew. It had been the tone with her aunt and cousin to speak of Milton with dislike and contempt. Just such feelings as Margaret was ashamed to remember she had expressed and felt, on first going to live there— But mr lennox almost exceeded margaret in his appreciation of the character of milton and its inhabitants their energy their power their indomitable courage in struggling and fighting their lurid vividness of existence captivated and arrested his attention he was never tired of talking about them and had never perceived how selfish and material were too many of the ends they proposed to themselves as the result of all their mighty untiring endeavor till Margaret, even in the midst of her gratification, had the candour to point this out, as the tainting sin in so much that was noble and to be admired. Still, when other subjects palled upon her, and she gave but short answers to many questions, Henry Lennox found out that an inquiry as to some Darkshire particularity of character called back the light into her eye, the glow into her cheek. When they returned to town, Margaret fulfilled one of her seaside resolves, and took her life into her own hands. Before they went to Cromer, she had been as docile to her aunt's laws as if she were still the scared little stranger who cried herself to sleep that first night in the Harley Street Nursery. But she had learnt, in those solemn hours of thought, that she herself must one day answer for her own life and what she had done with it, and she tried to settle that most difficult problem for women how much was to be utterly merged in obedience to authority and how much might be set apart for freedom in working mrs shaw was as good-tempered as could be and edith had inherited this charming domestic quality margaret herself had probably the worst temper of the three for her quick perceptions and over lively imagination made her hasty and her early isolation from sympathy had made her proud but she had an indescribable childlike sweetness of heart, which made her manners, even in her rarely willful moods, irresistible of old. And now, chastened even by what the world called her good fortune, she charmed her reluctant aunt into acquiescence with her will. So Margaret gained the acknowledgment of her right to follow her own ideas of duty. "'Only don't be strong-minded,' pleaded Edith. Mama wants you to have a footman of your own, and I'm sure you're very welcome, for they're great plagues. Only to please me, darling, don't go and have a strong mind. It's the only thing I ask. Footman or no footman, don't be strong-minded. Don't be afraid, Edith. I'll faint on your hands at the servants' dinner-time, the very first opportunity, and then, what with Sholto playing with the fire and the baby crying, you'll begin to wish for a strong-minded woman." equal to any emergency. And you'll not grow too good to joke and be merry? Not I. I shall be merrier than I ever have been, now I have got my own way. And you'll not go a figure, but let me buy your dresses for you? Indeed, I mean to buy them for myself. You shall come with me if you like, but no one can please me but myself. Oh, I was afraid you'd dress in brown and dust-color, not to show the dirt you'll pick up in all those places. I'm glad you're going to keep one or two vanities, just by way of specimens of the old Adam. I'm going to be just the same, Edith, if you and my aunt could but fancy so. Only as I have neither husband nor child to give me natural duties, I must make myself some, in addition to ordering my gowns. In the family conclave, which was made up of Edith, her mother, and her husband, It was decided that perhaps all these plans of hers would only secure her the more for Henry Lennox. They kept her out of the way of other friends who might have eligible sons or brothers, and it was also agreed that she never seemed to take much pleasure in the society of any one but Henry out of their own family. The other admirers, attracted by her appearance or the reputation of her fortune, were swept away by her unconscious, smiling disdain, into the paths frequented by other beauties less fastidious, or other heiresses with a larger amount of gold. Henry and she grew slowly into closer intimacy, but neither he nor she were people to brook the slightest notice of their proceedings. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Fifty. Changes at Milton. Here we go up, 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 and here we go down, down, down. E. Nursery song. Meanwhile, at Milton, the chimneys smoked, the ceaseless roar and mighty beat and dizzying whirl of machinery struggled and strove perpetually senseless and purposeless were wood and iron and steam in their endless labours but the persistence of their monotonous work was rivalled in tireless endurance by the strong crowds who with sense and with purpose were busy and restless in seeking after what in the streets there were few loiterers none walking for mere pleasure every man's face was set in lines of eagerness or anxiety news was sought for with fierce avidity and men jostled each other aside in the mart and in the exchange as they did in life in the deep selfishness of competition there was gloom over the town few came to buy and those who did were looked at suspiciously by the sellers for credit was insecure and the most stable might have their fortunes affected by the sweep in the great neighbouring port among the shipping houses Hitherto there had been no failures in Milton, but, from the immense speculations that had come to light in making a bad end in America, and yet nearer home, it was known that some Milton houses of business must suffer so severely that every day men's faces asked, if their tongues did not, What news? Who is gone? How will it affect me? And if two or three spoke together, they dwelt rather on the names of those who were safe, than dare to hint at those likely, in their opinion, to go. For idle breath may, at such times, cause the downfall of some who might otherwise weather the storm, and one going down drags many after. Thornton is safe, they say. His business is large, extending every year, but such a head as he has, and so prudent with all his daring. Then one man draws another aside, And walks a little apart and with head inclined into his neighbor's ear he says, Thornton's business is large, but he has spent his profits in extending it. He has no capital laid by. His machinery is new within these two years and has cost him-we won't say what-a word to the wise. But that Mr. Harrison was a croaker, a man who had succeeded to his father's trade made fortune. When he had feared to lose by altering his mode of business to any having a larger scope, yet he grudged every penny made by others more daring and far-sighted. But the truth was, Mr. Thornton was hard pressed. He felt it acutely in his vulnerable point-his pride in the commercial character which he had established for himself. Architect of his own fortunes, he attributed this to no special merit or qualities of his own but to the power which he believed that commerce gave to every brave, honest, and persevering man, to raise himself to a level from which he might see and read the great games of worldly success, and honestly, by such far-sightedness, command more power and influence than in any other mode of life. Far away, in the east and in the west, where his person would never be known, his name was to be regarded, And his wishes to be fulfilled, and his word pass like gold. That was the idea of merchant life with which Mr. Thornton had started. "'Her merchants be like princes,' said his mother, reading the text aloud, as if it were a trumpet-call to invite her boy to the struggle. He was but like many others—men, women, and children—alive to distant and dead to near things. He sought to possess the influence of a name in foreign countries and faraway seas, to become the head of a firm that should be known for generations, and it had taken him long silent years to come even to a glimmering of what he might be now, to-day, here in his own town, his own factory, among his own people. He and they had led parallel lives, very close, but never touching, till the accident, or so it seemed of his acquaintance with Higgins. Once brought face to face, man to man, with an individual of the masses around him, and, take notice, out of the character of master and workman, in the first instance they had begun to recognize that we have all of us one human heart. It was the fine point of the wedge, and until now, when the apprehension of losing his connection with two or three of the workmen whom he had so lately begun to know as men, of having a plan or two, which were experiments lying very close to his heart, roughly nipped off without trial, gave a new poignancy to the subtle fear that came over him from time to time. Until now he had never recognized how much and how deep was the interest he had grown of late to feel in his position as manufacturer, simply because it led him into such close contact and gave him the opportunity of so much power among a race of people strange, shrewd, ignorant, but, above all, full of character and strong human feeling. He reviewed his position as a Milton manufacturer. The strike a year and a half ago, or more, for it was now untimely wintry weather in a late spring, that strike, when he was young and he was now old, had prevented his completing some of the largest orders he had then on hand. He had locked up a good deal of his capital in new and expensive machinery, and he had also bought cotton largely for the fulfillment of these orders, taken under contract. That he had not been able to complete them was owing in some degree to the utter want of skill on the part of the Irish hands whom he had imported. Much of their work was damaged, and unfit to be sent forth by a house which prided itself on turning out nothing but first-rate articles. For many months the embarrassment caused by the strike had been an obstacle in Mr. Thornton's way, and often, when his eye fell on Higgins, he could have spoken angrily to him without any present cause, just from feeling how serious was the injury that had arisen from this affair in which he was implicated but when he became conscious of this sudden quick resentment he resolved to curb it it would not satisfy him to avoid higgins he must convince himself that he was master over his own anger by being particularly careful to allow higgins access to him whenever the strict rules of business or mr thornton's leisure permitted and by and by he lost all sense of resentment in wonder how it was or could be that two men like himself and higgins living by the same trade working in their different ways at the same object could look upon each other's position and duties in so strangely different a way and thence arose that intercourse which though it might not have the effect of preventing all future clash of opinion and action when the occasion arose would at any rate enable both master and man to look upon each other with far more charity and sympathy and bear with each other more patiently and kindly Besides this improvement of feeling, both Mr. Thornton and his workmen found out their ignorance as to positive matters of fact, known heretofore to one side but not to the other. But now had come one of those periods of bad trade, when the market falling brought down the value of all large stocks. Mr. Thornton's fell to nearly half. No orders were coming in, so he lost the interest of the capital he had locked up in machinery, Indeed, it was difficult to get payment for the orders completed, yet there was the constant drain of expenses for working the business. Then the bills became due for the cotton he had purchased, and money being scarce, he could only borrow at exorbitant interest, and yet could not realize any of his property. But he did not despair. He exerted himself day and night to foresee and to provide for all emergencies. He was as calm and gentle to the women in his home as ever, to the workmen in his mill he spoke not many words but they knew him by this time and many a curt decided answer was received by them rather with sympathy for the care they saw pressing upon him than with the suppressed antagonism which had formerly been smouldering and ready for hard words and hard judgments on all occasions the maister's a deal to potter him said higgins one day as he heard mr thornton's short sharp inquiry why such a command had not been obeyed, and caught the sound of the suppressed sigh which he heaved in going past the room where some of the men were working. Higgins and another man stopped over hours that night, unknown to any one, to get the neglected piece of work done, and Mr. Thornton never knew but that the overlooker, to whom he had given the command in the first instance, had done it himself. Eh? I reckon I know,' who'd hae been sorry for to see our master sittin so like a piece of grey calico the old parson would have fretted his woman's heart out if he'd seen the woeful looks i have seen on our maister's face thought higgins one day as he was approaching mr thornton in marlborough street maister said he stopping his employer in his quick resolved walk and causing that gentleman to look up with a sudden annoyed start as if his thoughts had been far away "'Have you heard aught of Miss Margaret lately?' "'Miss—who?' replied Mr. Thornton. "'Miss Margaret, miss Hale—the old parson's daughter. "'You know who I mean well enough, if you'll only think a bit.' There was nothing disrespectful in the tone in which this was said. "'Oh, yes.' And suddenly the wintry, frost-bound look of care had left Mr. Thornton's face— as if some soft summer gale had blown all anxiety away from his mind, and though his mouth was much compressed as before, his eyes smiled out benignly on his questioner. "'She's my landlord now, you know, Higgins. I hear of her through her agent here, every now and then. She's well and among friends.' "'Thank you, Higgins.' That thank you that lingered after the other words, and yet came with so much warmth of feeling, let in a new light to the acute Higgins. It might be but a will o the wisp, but he thought he would follow it, and ascertain whither it would lead him. "'And she's not getting married, maister. "'Not yet.' The face was cloudy once more. There's some talk of it, as I understand, with a connection of the family. "'Then she'll not be for coming to Milton again, I reckon?' "'No.' "'Stop a minute, maister.' "'Then going up confidentially close, he said, "'Is the young gentleman cleared?' "'He enforced the depth of his intelligence by a wink of the eye, "'which only made things more mysterious to Mr. Thornton. "'The young gentleman, I mean, Maister Frederick, they called him. "'Her brother as was over here, you know. "'Over here?' "'Aye, to be sure, at the missus's death.' You'll no know, nay be feared, am my tellin' for Mary and me. We knowed it all along, only we held our peace, for we got it through Mary working in the house. And he was over. It was her brother. Sure enough, and I reckon you knowed it. I'd never hae let on. You knowed she had a brother. Yes, I know all about him. And he was over at Mrs. Hale's death. Nay. I'm not going for to tell more. I've maybe getting them into mischief already, for they kept it very close. I know, but wanted to know if they'd gotten him cleared." Not that I know of. I know nothing. I only hear of Miss Hale, now, as my landlord, and through her lawyer. He broke off from Higgins to follow the business on which he had been bent when the latter first accosted him, leaving Higgins baffled in his endeavour. It was her brother, said Mr. Thornton to himself. I am glad. I may never see her again, but it is a comfort, a relief, to know that much. I knew she could not be unmaidenly, and yet I yearned for conviction. Now I am glad. It was a little golden thread running through the dark web of his present fortunes, which were growing ever gloomier and more gloomy. His agent had largely trusted a house in the American trade, which went down, along with several others, just at this time, like a pack of cards, the fall of one compelling other failures. What were Mr. Thornton's engagements? Could he stand? Night after night he took books and papers into his own private room, and sat up there long after the family were gone to bed. He thought that no one knew of this occupation of the hours he should have spent in sleep. One morning, when daylight was stealing in through the crevices of his shutters, and he had never been to bed, and, in hopeless indifference of mind, was thinking that he could do without the hour or two of rest, which was all that he should be able to take before the stir of daily labor began again, the door of his room opened, and his mother stood there, dressed as she had been the day before she had never laid herself down to slumber any more than he their eyes met their faces were cold and rigid and wan from long watching mother why are you not in bed son john said she do you think i can sleep with an easy mind while you keep awake full of care you have not told me what your trouble is but sore trouble you have had these many days past trade is bad. And you dread? I dread nothing, replied he, drawing up his head and holding it erect. I know now that no man will suffer by me. That was my anxiety. But how do you stand? Shall you— Will it be a failure? Her steady voice trembling in an unwanted manner. Not a failure. I must give up business— but i pay all men i might redeem myself i am sorely tempted how oh john keep up your name try at all risks for that how redeem it by speculation offered to me full of risk but if successful placing me above watermark so that no one need ever know of the strait i am in Still if it fails. And if it fails, said she, advancing and laying her hand on his arm, her eyes full of eager light, she held her breath to hear the end of his speech. Honest men are ruined by a rogue, said he gloomily. As I stand now, my creditors, money is safe, every farthing of it, but I don't know where to find my own. It may all be gone, and I penniless at this moment. Therefore, it is my creditor's money that I should risk. But if it succeeded, they need never know. Is it so desperate a speculation? I am sure it is not, or you would never have thought of it. If it succeeded, I should be a rich man, and my peace of conscience would be gone. Why? You would have injured no one. No, but I should have run the risk of ruining many from my own paltry aggrandizement. Mother, I have decided. You won't much grieve over our leaving this house, shall you, dear mother? No, but to have you other than what you are will break my heart. What can you do? Be always the same, John Thornton, in whatever circumstances. Endeavouring to do right and making great blunders, and then trying to be brave in setting to afresh. But it is hard, mother. I have so worked and planned. I have discovered new powers in my situation too late, and now all is over. I am too old to begin again with the same heart. It is hard, mother." He turned away from her and covered his face with his hands. I can't think, said she, with gloomy defiance in her tone, how it comes about. Here is my boy, good son, just man, tender heart, and he fails in all he sets his mind upon. He finds a woman to love, and she cares no more for his affection than if he had been any common man. He labours, and his labour comes to naught. Other people prosper and grow rich, and hold their paltry names high and dry above shame. "'Shame never touched me,' said he in a low voice. But she went on. "'I sometimes have wondered where justice was gone to, and now I don't believe there is such a thing in the world. Now you are come to this. You, my own John Thornton, though you and I must be beggars together. My own dear son.' she fell upon his neck and kissed him through her tears. "'Mother,' said he, holding her gently in his arms, "'who has sent me my lot in life, of both good and evil?' She shook her head. She would have nothing to do with religion just then. "'Mother,' he went on, seeing that she would not speak, "'I, too, have been rebellious, but I am striving to be so no longer.' HELP ME, AS YOU HELPED ME WHEN I WAS A CHILD. THEN YOU SAID MANY GOOD WORDS, WHEN MY FATHER DIED, AND WE WERE SOMETIMES SORELY SHORT OF COMFORTS, WHICH WE SHALL NEVER BE NOW. YOU SAID BRAVE, NOBLE, TRUSTFUL WORDS THEN, MOTHER, WHICH I HAVE NEVER FORGOTTEN, THOUGH THEY MAY HAVE lain DORMANT. SPEAK TO ME AGAIN IN THE OLD WAY, MOTHER. Do not let us have to think that the world has too much hardened our hearts. If you would say the old good words, it would make me feel something of the pious simplicity of my childhood. I say them to myself, but they would come differently from you, remembering all the cares and trials you have had to bear. I have had many, said she, sobbing, but none so sore as this to see you cast down from your rightful place i could say it for myself john but not for you not for you god has seen fit to be very hard on you very she shook with the sobs that came so convulsively when an old person weeps the silence around her struck her at last she quieted herself to listen no sound she looked. Her son sat by the table, his arms thrown half across it, his face bent downwards. "'Oh, John!' said she, and she lifted his face up. Such a strange, pallid look of gloom was on it, that for a moment it struck her that this look was the forerunner of death, but as the rigidity melted out of the countenance and the natural color returned, she saw that he was himself once again." All the worldly mortification sank to nothing before the consciousness of the great blessing that he himself by his simple existence was to her. She thanked God for this, and this alone, with a fervor that swept away all rebellious feelings from her mind. He did not speak readily, but he went and opened the shutters, and let the ruddy light of dawn flood the room. But the wind was in the east— The weather was piercing cold, as it had been for weeks, there would be no demand for light summer goods this year. That hope for the revival of trade must utterly be given up. It was a great comfort to have had this conversation with his mother, and to feel sure that, however they might henceforward keep silence on all these anxieties, they yet understood each other's feelings, and were, if not in harmony, at least not in discord with each other, in their way of viewing them. Fanny's husband was vexed at Thornton's refusal to take any share in the speculation which he had offered to him, and withdrew from any possibility of being supposed able to assist him with the ready money which indeed the speculator needed for his own venture. There was nothing for it at last, but that which Mr. Thornton had dreaded for many weeks— He had to give up the business in which he had been so long engaged, with so much honour and success, and look out for a subordinate situation. Marlborough Mills and the adjacent dwelling were held under a long lease. They must, if possible, be relet. There was an immediate choice of situations offered to Mr. Thornton. Mr. Hamper would have been only too glad to have secured him as a steady and experienced partner for his son— whom he was setting up with a large capital in a neighboring town. But the young man was half educated as regarded information, and wholly uneducated as regarded any other responsibility than that of getting money, and brutalized both as to his pleasures and his pains. Mr. Thornton declined having any share in a partnership which would frustrate what few plans he had that survived the wreck of his fortunes. He would sooner consent to be only a manager where he could have a certain degree of power beyond the mere money-getting part, than to have to fall in with the tyrannical humors of a moneyed partner with whom he felt sure that he should quarrel in a few months. So he waited, and stood on one side with profound humility as the news swept through the exchange of the enormous fortune which his brother-in-law had made by his daring speculation. It was a nine days' wonder. Success brought with it, its worldly consequence of extreme admiration. No one was considered so wise and far-seeing as Mister Watson. End of Chapter Fifty. Chapter Fifty One of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Fifty One. Meeting Again. Bear up, brave heart, we will be calm and strong. Sure, we can master eyes, or cheek or tongue, Nor let the smallest tell-tale sign appear She ever was, and is, and will be, dear. Rhyming Play It was a hot summer's evening. Edith came into Margaret's bedroom, The first time in her habit, The second ready-dressed for dinner. No one was there at first, the next time edith found Dixon laying out margaret's dress on the bed, but no margaret. Edith remained to fidget about. Oh, Dixon, not those horrid blue flowers to that dead gold-coloured gown. What taste! Wait a minute, I will bring you some pomegranate blossoms. It's not a dead gold colour, ma'am. It's a straw colour, and blue always goes with straw colour but Edith had brought the brilliant scarlet flowers before Dixon had got half through her remonstrance. "'Where's Miss Hale?' asked Edith, as soon as she had tried the effect of the garniture. "'I can't think,' she went on pettishly, "'how my aunt allowed her to get into such rambling habits in Milton. I'm sure I'm always expecting to hear of her having met with something horrible among all those wretched places she pokes herself into. I should never dare to go down some of those streets without a servant.' they're not fit for ladies.' Dixon was still huffed about her despised taste, so she replied, rather shortly, "'It's no wonder to my mind, when I hear ladies talk such a deal about being ladies, and when they're such fearful, delicate, dainty ladies, too, I say it's no wonder to me that there are no longer any saints on earth.' "'Oh, Margaret, here you are. I have been so wanting you. But how your cheeks are flushed with the heat!' "'Poor child! Only think what that tiresome Henry has done. Really, he exceeds brother-in-law's limits. Just when my party was made up so beautifully, fitted in so precisely for Mr. Coldhurst, there has Henry come, with an apology it is true, and making use of your name for an excuse, and asked me if he might bring that Mr. Thornton of Milton, your tenant, you know, who is in London about some law business.' "'It will spoil my number, quite. "'I don't mind dinner. "'I don't want any,' said Margaret, in a low voice. "'Dixon can bring me a cup of tea here, "'and I will be in the drawing-room by the time you come up. "'I shall really be glad to lie down. "'No, no, that will never do. "'You do look wretchedly white, to be sure, "'but that is just the heat, "'and we can't do without you, possibly. "'Those flowers a little lower, Dixon.' They look glorious flames, Margaret, in your black hair. You know, we planned you to talk about Milton to Mr. Coldhurst. Oh, to be sure, and this man comes from Milton. I believe it will be capital after all. Mr. Coldhurst can pump him well on all subjects in which he is interested, and it would be great fun to trace out your experiences. And this Mr. Thornton's wisdom, in Mr. Coldhurst's next speech in the house, really, i think it is a happy hit of henry's i asked him if he was a man one would be ashamed of and he replied not if you've any sense in you my little sister so i suppose he is able to sound his h's which is not a common darkshire accomplishment eh margaret mr lennox did not say why mr thornton was come up to town was it law business connected with the property asked margaret in a constrained voice oh he's failed or something of the kind, that Henry told you of that day you had such a headache. What was it? There, that's capital, Dixon. Miss Hale does us credit, does she not? I wish I were as tall as a queen, and as brown as a gypsy, Margaret. But about Mr. Thornton. Oh, I really have such a terrible head for law business. Henry will like nothing better than to tell you all about it. I know the impression he made upon me was— that Mr. Thornton is very badly off, and a very respectable man, and that I am to be very civil to him, and as I do not know how, I came to ask you to help me, and now come down with me, and rest on the sofa for a quarter of an hour. The privileged brother-in-law came early, and Margaret, reddening as she spoke, began to ask him the questions she wanted to hear answered about Mr. Thornton. He came up about this subletting the property, Marlborough Mills and the house and premise adjoining, I mean. He is unable to keep it on, and there are deeds and leases to be looked over, and agreements to be drawn up. I hope Edith will receive him properly, but she was rather put out, as I could see, by the liberty I had taken in begging for an invitation for him. But I thought you would like to have some attention shown him, and one would be particularly scrupulous in paying every respect to a man who is going down in the world. He had dropped his voice to speak to Margaret, by whom he was sitting, but as he ended he sprang up and introduced Mr. Thornton, who had that moment entered, to Edith and Captain Lennox. Margaret looked with an anxious eye at Mr. Thornton while he was thus occupied. It was considerably more than a year since she had seen him, and events had occurred to change him much in that time. His fine figure yet bore him above the common height of men, and gave him a distinguished appearance, from the ease of motion which arose out of it, and was natural to him. But his face looked older and careworn, yet a noble composure sat upon it which impressed those who had just been hearing of his changed position with a sense of inherent dignity and manly strength. He was aware, from the first glance he had given round the room, that Margaret was there. He had seen her intent look of occupation as she listened to Mr. Henry Lennox, and he came up to her with the perfectly regulated manner of an old friend. With his first calm words a vivid color flashed into her cheeks, which never left them again during the evening. She did not seem to have much to say to him. She disappointed him by the quiet way in which she asked what seemed to him to be the merely necessary questions respecting her old acquaintances in Milton. But others came in, more intimate in the house than he, and he fell into the background where he and Mr. Lennox talked together from time to time. "'You think Miss Hale looking well,' said Mr. Lennox. "'Don't you?' Milton didn't agree with her, I imagine, for when she first came to London I thought I had never seen anyone so much changed. Tonight she is looking radiant, but she is much stronger. Last autumn she was fatigued with a walk of a couple miles. On Friday evening we walked to Hampstead and back, yet on Saturday she looked as well as she does now.' we who they two alone mr colthurst was a very clever man and a rising member of parliament he had a quick eye and a discerning character and was struck by a remark which mr thornton made at dinner-time he inquired from edith who that gentleman was and rather to her surprise she found from the tone of his indeed that mr thornton of milton was not such an unknown name to him as she had imagined it would be her dinner was going off well. Henry was in good humor, and brought out his dry, caustic wit admirably. Mr. Thornton and Mr. Coldhurst found one or two mutual subjects of interest, which they could only touch upon then, reserving them for more private after-dinner talk. Margaret looked beautiful in the pomegranate flowers, and if she did lean back in her chair and speak but little, Edith was not annoyed, for the conversation flowed on smoothly without her. Margaret was watching Mr. Thornton's face. He never looked at her, so she might study him unobserved, and note the changes which even this short time had wrought in him. Only at some unexpected mot of Mr. Lennox's his face flashed out into the old look of intense enjoyment. The merry brightness returned to his eyes, the lips just parted to suggest the brilliant smile of former days, and for an instant his glance instinctively sought hers, as if he wanted her sympathy but when their eyes met his whole countenance changed. He was grave and anxious once more, and he resolutely avoided even looking near her again during dinner. There were only two ladies besides their own party, and as these were occupied in conversation by her aunt and Edith when they went up to the drawing-room, Margaret languidly employed herself about some work. Presently the gentlemen came up, Mr. Colthurst and Mr. Thornton in close conversation, Mr. Lennox drew near to Margaret, and said in a low voice, "'I really think Edith owes me thanks for my contribution to her party. You've no idea what an agreeable, sensible fellow this tenant of yours is. He's been the very man to give Colthurst all the facts he wanted coaching in. I can't conceive how he contrived to mismanage his affairs.' "'With his powers and opportunities you would have succeeded,' said Margaret, he did not relish the tone in which she spoke, although the words expressed a thought which had passed through his own mind. As he was silent, they caught a swell in the sound of conversation going on near the fireplace between Mr. Coldhurst and Mr. Thornton. "'I assure you, I heard it spoken of with great interest. Curiosity as to its result, perhaps I should rather say. I heard your name frequently mentioned during my short stay in the neighborhood.' Then they lost some words." and when next they could hear Mr. Thornton was speaking. I have not the elements for popularity. If they spoke of me in that way, they were mistaken. I fall slowly into new projects, and I find it difficult to let myself be known, even by those whom I desire to know, and with whom I would fain have no reserve. Yet, even with all these drawbacks, I felt that I was on the right path, and that, starting from a kind of friendship with one, I was becoming acquainted with many. The advantages were mutual. We were both unconsciously and consciously teaching each other. "'You say were. I trust you are intending to pursue the same course?' "'I must stop, Colthurst,' said Henry Lennox hastily, and by an abrupt yet apropos question he turned the current of the conversation so as not to give Mr. Thornton the mortification of acknowledging his want of success and consequent change of position. But as soon as the newly started subject had come to a close— Mr. Thornton resumed the conversation, just where it had been interrupted, and gave Mr. Colthurst the reply to his inquiry. "'I have been unsuccessful in business, and have had to give up my position as a master. I am on the lookout for a situation in Milton, where I may meet with employment under someone who will be willing to let me go along my own way in such manners as these. I can depend upon myself for having no go-ahead theories that I would rashly bring into practice, My only wish is to have the opportunity of cultivating some intercourse with the hands beyond the mere cash nexus, but it might be the point Archimedes sought from which to move the earth, to judge from the importance attached to it by some of our manufacturers, who shake their heads and look grave as soon as I name the one or two experiments that I should like to try. "'You call them experiments, I notice,' said Mr. Colthurst, with a delicate increase of respect in his manner." because I believe them to be such. I am not sure of the consequences that may result from them, but I am sure they ought to be tried. I have arrived at the conviction that no mere institutions, however wise and however much thought may have been required to organize and arrange them, can attach class to class as they should be attached, unless the working out of such institutions bring the individuals of the different classes into actual personal contact such intercourse is the very breath of life. A working man can hardly be made to feel and know how much his employer may have labored in his study at plans for the benefit of his workpeople. A complete plan emerges like a piece of machinery, apparently fitted for every emergency, but the hands accept it as they do machinery, without understanding the intense mental labor and forethought required to bring it to such perfection. But I would take an idea the working out of which would necessitate personal intercourse. It might not go well at first, but at every hitch interest would be felt by an increasing number of men, and at last its success in working come to be desired by all, as all had borne a part of the formation of the plan, and even then I am sure that it would lose its vitality, cease to be living, as soon as it was no longer carried on by that sort of common interest, which invariably makes people find means and ways of seeing each other, and becoming acquainted with each other's characters and persons, and even tricks of temper and modes of speech. We should understand each other better, and I'll venture to say that we should like each other more. And you think they may prevent the recurrence of strikes? Not at all. My utmost expectation only goes so far as this, that they may render strikes not the bitter, venomous sources of hatred they have hitherto been. A more hopeful man might imagine that a closer and more genial intercourse between classes might do away with strikes. But I am not a hopeful man." Suddenly, as if a new idea had struck him, he crossed over to where Margaret was sitting, and began, without preface, as if he knew she had been listening to all that had passed. "'Miss Hale, I had a round robin from some of my men.' I suspect in Higgins handwriting, stating their wish to work for me, if ever I was in a position to employment again on my own behalf. That was good, wasn't it? Yes, just right. I am glad of it, said Margaret, looking up straight into his face with her speaking eyes, and then dropping them under his eloquent glance. He gazed back at her for a minute, as if he did not know exactly what he was about, then sighed, and saying, I knew you would like it." He turned away, and never spoke to her again until he bid her a formal good-night. As Mr. Lennox took his departure, Margaret said, with a blush that she could not repress, and with some hesitation, "'Can I speak to you to-morrow? I want your help about—something.' "'Certainly. I will come at whatever time you name. You cannot give me a greater pleasure than by making me of any use. At eleven—' very well. His eye brightened with exultation. How she was learning to depend upon him. It seemed as if any day now might give him the certainty, without having which he had determined never to offer to her again. End of chapter 51 Chapter 52 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Marianne, chapter 52, Pack Clouds Away, for joy or grief, for hope or fear, for all hereafter, as for here, in peace or strife, in storm or shine. Anonymous Edith went about on tiptoe and checked Sholto in all loud speaking that next morning, as if any sudden noise would interrupt the conference that was taking place in the drawing-room. Two o'clock came, and they still sat there with closed doors. Then there was a man's footstep running downstairs, and Edith peeped out of the drawing-room. "'Well, Henry,' said she, with a look of interrogation. "'Well,' said he, rather shortly, "'come in to lunch,' no thank you i can't i've lost too much time here already then it's not all settled said edith despondingly no not at all it never will be settled if the it is what i conjecture you mean that will never be edith so give up thinking about it but it would be so nice for us all pleaded edith i should always feel comfortable about the children if i had margaret settled down near me As it is, I am always afraid of her going off to Cadiz. "'I will try, when I marry, to look out for a young lady who has a knowledge of the management of children. That is all I can do. Miss Hale would not have me, and I shall not ask her. "'Then what have you been talking about?' "'A thousand things you would not understand—investments and leases and value of land—' Oh, go away, if that's all. You and she will be unbearably stupid if you've been talking all this time about such weary things. Very well. I'm coming again to-morrow and bringing Mr. Thornton with me to have some more talk with Miss Hale. Mr. Thornton? What has he to do with it? He is Miss Hale's tenant, said Mr. Lennox, turning away, and he wishes to give up his lease. Oh, very well i can't understand details so don't give them me the only detail i want you to understand is to let us have the back drawing-room undisturbed as it was to-day in general the children and servants are so in and out that i can never get any business satisfactorily explained and the arrangements we have to make to-morrow are of importance no one ever knew why Mr. Lennox did not keep his appointment on the following day. Mr. Thornton came true to his time, and, after keeping him waiting for nearly an hour, Margaret came in looking very white and anxious. She began hurriedly, "'I am so sorry Mr. Lennox is not here. He could have done it so much better than I can. He is my adviser in this.' "'I am sorry that I came, if it troubles you,' "'Shall I go to Mr. Lennox's chambers and try and find him?' "'No. Thank you. I wanted to tell you how grieved I was to find out that I am losing you as a tenant, but Mr. Lennox says things are sure to brighten.' "'Mr. Lennox knows little about it,' said Mr. Thornton quietly. "'Happy and fortunate in all a man cares for, he does not understand what it is to find oneself no longer young,' yet thrown back to the starting point which requires the hopeful energy of youth. To feel one half of life gone, and nothing done, nothing remaining of wasted opportunity, but the bitter recollection that it has been. Miss Hale, I would rather not hear Mr. Lennox's opinion of my affairs. Those who are happy and successful themselves are too apt to make light of the misfortunes of others. You are unjust, said Margaret gently. "'Mr. Lennox has only spoken "'of the great probability "'which he believes there to be "'of your redeeming. "'You're more than redeeming "'what you have lost. "'Don't speak till I have ended. "'Pray, don't.' "'And collecting herself once more, "'she went on rapidly, "'turning over some law papers "'and statements of accounts "'in a trembling, hurried manner. "'Oh, here it is, and... "'He drew me out a proposal.' I wish he was here to explain it, showing that if you would take some money of mine, eighteen thousand and fifty-seven pounds, lying just at this moment unused in the bank, and bringing me in only two and a half per cent, you could pay me much better interest, and might go on working Marlborough Mills. Her voice had cleared itself and become more steady. Mr. Thornton did not speak and she went on looking for some paper on which were written down the proposals for security, for she was anxious to have it all looked upon in the light of a mere business arrangement, in which the principal advantage would be on her side. While she sought for this paper, her very heart-pulse was arrested by the tone in which Mr. Thornton spoke. His voice was hoarse and trembling with tender passion, as he said, "'Margaret.' For an instant she looked up, and then sought to veil her luminous eyes by dropping her forehead on her hands. Again, stepping nearer, he besought her with another tremulous, eager call upon her name. Margaret. Still lower went the head. More closely hidden was the face, almost resting on the table before her. He came close to her. He knelt by her side to bring his face to a level with her ear, and whisper-panted out the words, Take care. If you do not speak, I shall claim you as my own in some strange, presumptuous way. Send me away at once if I must go. Margaret. At that third call she turned her face, still covered with her small white hands, toward him, and laid it on his shoulder, hiding it even there. And it was too delicious to feel her soft cheek against his for him to wish to see either deep blushes or loving eyes. He clasped her close, but they both kept silence. At length she murmured in a broken voice, Oh, Mr. Thornton, I am not good enough. Not good enough. Don't mock my own deep feeling of unworthiness. After a minute or two, he gently disengaged her hands from her face and laid her arms as they had once before been placed to protect him from the rioters. Do you remember, love, he murmured, and how I requited you with my insolence the next day? I remember how wrongly I spoke to you. That is all. Look here, lift up your head. I have something to show you." She slowly faced him, glowing with beautiful shame. "'Do you know these roses?' said he, drawing out his pocket-book, in which were treasured up some dead flowers. "'No,' she replied, with innocent curiosity. Did I give them to you?" "'No, Vanity, you did not. You may have worn sister-roses, very probably.' She looked at them, wondering for a moment. Then she smiled a little as she said, They're from Helstone, are they not? I know the deep indentations round the leaves. Oh, have you been there? When were you there? I wanted to see the place where Margaret grew to what she is, even at the worst time of all, when I had no hope of ever calling her mine. I went there on my return from Avra, You must give them to me, said she, trying to take them out of his hand with gentle violence. Very well. Only you must pay me for them. How shall I ever tell, Aunt Shaw? she whispered, after some time of delicious silence. Let me speak to her. Oh, no, I owe to her. But what will she say? I can guess. Her first exclamation will be— that man. Hush, said Margaret, or I shall try to show you your mother's indignant tones as she says, that woman. End of chapter 52 And End of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell Read by Marianne Spiegel Thank you for listening.